Welcome to episode 6 of Masculinity, Critical Study of Matthew and Masculinity. This is the series in which I'll be navigating the world of Matthewan research, identifying assumptions, connecting old and new interpretations, including questions and perspectives previously overlooked or undervalued. There's a whole world of research that awaits. Are you ready? In this very big episode, I'll be looking to answer two questions. What was Joseph thinking about Mary? And why did Joseph not consult Mary before making a decision that he would divorce her quietly? Does the story as we have it in Matthew answer these questions? I'd like to suggest that, yes, we can actually find the answer in the text by, first of all, examining our assumptions. Like, does it really help us to be importing ideas from the book of Luke into Matthew chapter 1? And is it accurate to say that the text has neglected to tell us how Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant? And does the story really suggest that there were rumours circulating about Mary? And does the text really talk about Mary becoming pregnant from the Holy Spirit? And was Joseph really expected to hand Mary over to be put on trial, to be sentenced to death? And does the story really suggest that Joseph thought Mary was to blame and was guilty of adultery? So I'll be looking at what was going on with Joseph. What was Joseph thinking? I'll begin now by reading aloud the relevant portion of text. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. The Messiah's genesis happened like this. His mother Mary, being betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, her having a pregnant belly from the Holy Spirit became apparent. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to shame her, decided to divorce her quietly. Having resolved to do these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for her child is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This whole thing happened so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin will have a pregnant belly, and she will give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Rising from sleep, Joseph did what the angel of the Lord told him to do. He took his wife, and he did not know her up till the time that she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. What was Joseph thinking? In order for us to understand Joseph's decision to divorce Mary quietly, it means knowing what Joseph was thinking. Except the text doesn't say. But it seems such an essential part of understanding what's going on with Joseph's decision. And when the angel appears to Joseph and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, is the angel really saying, Joseph, you're wrong. You're about to do the wrong thing. Because you're assuming the wrong thing about Mary. 
you're assuming that she's committed adultery. You've misjudged the situation and you've misjudged Mary. But the text does not mention what Joseph was thinking. Even though the whole basis of our interpretation of what Joseph is doing seems to depend on knowing what Joseph was thinking. It seems such an essential, basic thing for us to know, and yet it seems to be missing. How can such an essential thing be missing from the text? And there's another thing missing. It's another big thing missing. The second conspicuously missing element is that Joseph doesn't consult Mary before making his decision. Now, this seems a little bit strange, because Joseph is naturally going to get it wrong if he's ignoring Mary's perspective, but hang on, whose fault is that? Mary's just there. Why not ask Mary? It seems like Joseph's just not interested in Mary's perspective. Is Joseph not going to base his decision on anything that Mary has to say about her own pregnancy? Why is he not going to check with Mary before making his decision? And, well, if the text is expecting us to assume that he did consult Mary, then why doesn't the text indicate that? And why does Joseph's decision not seem to reflect anything that that Mary has told him? So we've got this missing conversation. There's no indication in the text that Mary and Joseph have spoken together or that, that Joseph's decision is based on what Mary has told him. So that's two key things missing from the text, which we could summarize as what was Joseph thinking about Mary and what was Joseph thinking in not consulting Mary? Also, you might have noticed a little bit of a contradiction in the story. Well, it seemed to be quite a big contradiction. To introduce Joseph as a righteous man who who does the right thing, but an angel has to intervene in order to stop Joseph from doing the wrong thing, because Joseph's assuming the wrong thing and can't be bothered to check with Mary. Now, this seems like a bit of a mess, and you know, perhaps it's not very well written, although it's much more likely that it's not that it's not well written, it's just that we're not reading it very well. I like the way that Ian Boxall says it when he says that ideally readers are expected to applaud Joseph's decision, which suggests that perhaps we're not the ideal readers. If we're finding flaws in Joseph's decision, then perhaps we're not reading with the text. Now, not everybody wants to read with the text, but for those of us who are very interested in reading in line with the text, or at least reading generously, listening generously to what the text has to say, and we want to know, well, what was Joseph thinking? What is the text telling us? Then how do we do it? How do we do it? How do we find the logic in verse 19? The the logic of what's going on with Joseph and Joseph's decision to divorce Mary quietly. So if if it was intended to make logical sense, and presumably it was intended to make logical sense, how do we find that logic? 
or to use the technical term exegete. How do we exegete the text? How do we do an exegesis so that we can unpack what's going on in verse 19 and find the logical sense that, that's in the text? Well, the way, as I see it, to get into the text is to begin from our end, to begin with all the assumptions that we tend to hold. That That's the best way in because that's that's what we're most familiar with, and that's probably what's uh, preventing us from 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 really getting into the text is if we're not fully aware of what are all the assumptions. So here are the six most common assumptions to begin with in order to be able to find what's going on with Joseph's decision. What was he thinking? And why did he not consult Mary? The first assumption is that we can take elements from another book and import them into Matthew, uh, particularly the book of Luke. So we can take something from the Gospel of Luke and mix it in with Matthew uh, to help make sense of what's going on in Matthew chapter 1. But this is something that is uh, not recommended if we're wanting to find the answer in the text, according to the text as we have it, without mixing in other elements from other books written at about the same time or just after, like the book of Luke. For example, the book of Luke has a nativity scene, and it's very tempting to want to import the idea of a nativity scene into Matthew chapter 1, as if Matthew chapter 1 is being is written as if we're expected to be reading it as a nativity scene. Um, but we might end up reading it as if it's a page out of the book of Luke, rather than reading it as Matthew. Uh, what's, what's the story in Matthew about in Matthew chapter 1? We've got a story about Joseph, who's about to divorce to divorce Mary because he's just found out that she's pregnant with a child that's not his. Now this isn't part this this story in Matthew isn't found in Luke, and neither is a nativity scene found in Matthew. Unless of course we want chapter two to be like a delayed nativity scene that happens several months later. When the Magi make a trip to visit Jesus. But in chapter 1, we don't have a nativity scene. We don't find out anything that happens on the day that Jesus was born. That's just not what the story is about in Matthew chapter 1. I like to give the example of two songs that um, that someone has decided to mash up into a new version, which is a mashup of those two songs. And... We can appreciate the effect of of what that person has achieved, especially if we're already familiar with those two songs separately. Uh, We can appreciate the effect that the the, the more that we're familiar with what those two songs originally were, the more we can appreciate what has been achieved in, in mashing up the two songs into a new 
version. Well, it's similar with Matthew and Luke. Uh, if we're going to mash up Matthew with Luke, we're going to end up with something that's not quite Matthew and not quite Luke. It's, it's going to be something different. It's a different kind of activity. And that's not the kind of activity that I'll be attempting to do over these episodes. I'll be just trying to be a purist and interpret Matthew uh, according to Matthew. I'm always delighted when I find another person who's as much of a purist as I am in this regard. Um, Because most people are happy to to blend occasionally bits and pieces from other books written around about the other about the same time as Matthew and I um and a bit more of a purist and I think well can we figure out what's going on in Matthew because it does seem like it was intended to make sense on its own terms without expecting us to have read uh, the gospel of Luke it doesn't seem to me that the Gospel of Luke was even written yet. So how can we be expected to need to go and read Luke in order to understand what's going on in Matthew? The second assumption is that the story has neglected to include how it was that Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant. Now, the early interpreters of Matthew chapter 1 did not think that the text was missing this detail. They thought that it did tell us how how it was that Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant. Well, how? How is it that they are reading the text so that it doesn't have that part missing. Because uh, if we ask the modern commentators in the modern commentaries, well, the usual reply is, well, the text doesn't tell us. The text just doesn't include the detail about how Joseph found out. Okay, so where are they getting the idea from in the early centuries? Where are they getting the idea from? Well, it's to do with ambiguity. And these days, we have a a modern tendency to eliminate ambiguity. We don't really want to keep ambiguity in the text uh, and to include multiple options. So we usually want to pick one and eliminate the others. So let's have a look at verse 18 and notice where the ambiguity is and notice where it it may be telling us how it was that Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant. So verse 18 says uh, that the Messiah's genesis happened like this. His mother Mary, being betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, her having a pregnant belly from the Holy Spirit became apparent. So it's this this verb it became apparent or it became known or it was found to be or it was found to be the case that or it turned out to be that uh this is a it's not a very specific verb it's it's more like a a happens to be kind of verb you know it happens to be 
the case that uh, you know Mary happens to be pregnant, and so this this is a very non-specific way of indicating um, that that Mary is pregnant, and there are several ways to read it. So we could read it. Um, so grammatically and logically, it could be read as if it's saying to whom it became apparent. So it could be read as if it's saying it became apparent to Mary. Um, it was it was Mary who realised she she was pregnant. Uh, that we know that makes sense. Or it could be saying it became apparent to Joseph. Um, well, that, that also makes sense. Mary and Joseph are the are the main characters here. Well, they're, they're really the, the only human characters who would be noticing, you know, to whom it would be the most relevant to say that it became apparent to someone, uh, so either to Mary and or to Joseph. It could also say, be saying that it became apparent to other people who noticed that Mary had a pregnant belly. Anyone who saw Mary could could tell that you know she looks pregnant. Um, in in modern English, I suppose we would say Mary is showing. Mary's pregnant belly was showing, or Mary's baby bump was showing. Um, and, and a fourth way of interpreting it, which is which is the most um, common in, in the modern commentaries, is that. It, it's saying that it became apparent. Um, well, it's really, it's really alerting the readers. It's really talking to the readers, and and letting the readers know that Mary is pregnant. This is where we're going to start the story with Mary already pregnant, and that's you know that's that's the point of it. It's really trying to communicate something directly to the readers. But we don't need to pick one of these meanings and eliminate. The others, it's not like these meanings are mutually exclusive. I mean, it it could be saying it became apparent to Mary and to Joseph and to other people who saw her. And it could also be informing the readers. It doesn't need to be only one of these four options. And so we do have a tendency to pick one or maybe sometimes two, to pick one or two, and then to exclude the other options. But if we go back to the early centuries, and we see that the way that the early readers were reading it, they were reading it as if it was including Joseph. It became apparent to Joseph. Joseph saw that Mary had a pregnant belly. That's the way that the early readers were interpreting it. And so this is not necessarily reading something into the text. This is just uh, noticing that it's been written ambiguously, and it seems that quite logical to think, well, okay, Joseph is included here, and so it's indicating how Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant. It's not that Mary needed to announce it to Joseph with her words, because her belly signaled it. Her belly has announced it um, visually. To Joseph. Now, of course, this doesn't solve the whole issue of, well, was there a conversation as well? Was there a point where Mary and Joseph 
talk together about Mary's pregnancy. This doesn't solve that that issue. That's a, that's a separate issue, and uh, the earliest readers uh, recognize that, that you know that they're two separate elements: the element of Joseph finding out, and then the issue of did Joseph and Mary have a conversation as well. That's that's a separate matter. Uh, but as for the matter of how how did Joseph find out that Mary was pregnant? Well, perhaps the text has not neglected to tell us. Perhaps the text does actually indicate how it was that Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant. The third assumption is that there were scandalous rumours circulating about Mary's pregnancy within the story, as if people had found out that Joseph was not the father. Now, why do we have a tendency to think this? Well, one of the reasons is there's a, we can get confused uh, between the story and what the people in the story know, the characters in the story, and our interpretation as being outside the story and, and thinking that what we know, uh, and forgetting that, well, what we know is not necessarily what all the characters in the story know. So if we ask who in the story knows what, because we know that we are outside the story, uh, we know quite a lot. We, we know uh, what Mary and Joseph know. Uh, we know that Joseph's not the father. But what about the people in the story? So Mary knows that Joseph's not the father. Joseph knows that he's not the father. But what about other people in the story? Well, we don't have any other characters introduced in the story, but we can assume that Mary and Joseph uh, are not alone in the world, that in, in the story world that, that they're in, there are other implied people who exist, other family members, other neighbours, other general public. So who who else in the story can we presume know this information. They know for certain that Joseph is not the father. Well, according to the story, well, no one knows that for certain other than Mary and Joseph. And they couldn't know it for certain unless Mary or Joseph were to tell them. Uh, they, they could have an opinion and they could say, well, it looks like Mary and Joseph are having a child together. Uh, it looks like Joseph is the father of, of the pregnancy. But uh, they wouldn't know for certain unless they asked Mary and Joseph and Mary and Joseph were to to explain to them, but I don't think Mary would want to say uh, that it's not Joseph. So they, I don't think they would want to say. And it says that Joseph doesn't want to say because it says that Joseph doesn't want to shame Mary. So in other words, he, he doesn't want to say anything about what he knows about the paternity. He, he doesn't want to see Mary disgraced. So he, he's going to keep quiet. So it seems that according to the story, then, no, there's, there's no scandal that develops. There's only the potential for it to develop into a scandal. If Mary were to say something, uh, if Mary were to say that Joseph wasn't the father and to tell people, or if Joseph was to say that he wasn't the father and to, and to tell people. Now, what about the idea that Joseph was considered to be the father and the text is saying that 
people may have had a, had a problem with Joseph being known as the father because Mary and Joseph haven't started living together yet. So they're only in the betrothal stage of marriage. They're not supposed to be having a child together until they're in the living together stage. That's supposed to be the sexual relationship was when they start living together. So perhaps that's something scandalous. Um, well, well, not not really, because it's not, it's not the same kind of idea as scandal. It's not a, it's not necessarily an encouraged thing. It's not like they encouraged couples to to um, skip the betrothal period. Um, although, from what we know, um, the betrothal period went out of fashion for a few centuries. So it was something found in the biblical period, and then it's something found in the later rabbinic period. And this is our only example that we know of uh, from from this time period uh, that, that that we hear a story about a betrothal period. So it does seem to be an old-fashioned idea at this stage that hasn't really been brought back into fashion. So I don't know if it's supposed to be sounding old-fashioned or new-fashioned. I'm not really quite sure what's going on there, but in terms of, okay, there is a betrothal period and couples are supposed to wait. Uh, you know, it's assumed that couples will wait until they're in the living together stage to begin a sexual relationship. So is this something scandalous that, that people were assuming that Joseph was the father but that Mary and Joseph should have waited a little bit. Now, remember, it doesn't actually say well, how long it is until Mary was was expected to move in with Joseph. I mean, it, it, it could be days away. It could be really close. We, we really don't know how close uh, or how long the betrothal period uh, is supposed to, we're supposed to assume. I mean, it could be any any length of time and that it's completely unspecified, which means it's not really part of the story, which means that we've got to figure out a way of interpreting the story that doesn't depend on knowing exactly the length of the betrothal and what stage of the betrothal and would people have found it offensive that that, that Mary, Mary and Joseph are having a child at this stage? Well, I think the short answer is no, because they're not forbidden to each other. There are other relationships that would be considered forbidden, but, but this is not one of them. Mary is not forbidden to Joseph, according to the public perception, and Joseph is not forbidden to Mary. And what the public thinks is quite quite a strong indicator of legality. So it's not like there's a government certificate that Mary and Joseph are supposed to be waiting for that, that actually declares them legally married. This is a legal marriage. If people think that they're that they're together, if the public thinks they're together, then the according to the public opinion, then they're basically considered fully married. So having the perception of being in a sexual relationship and being eligible to each other and not being forbidden to each other, then that's basically um fully married. That's what 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 is there left to do other than to to start living together. I mean um, so it does seem to be something that's, it's not that that's necessarily the encouraged, uh, practice, although we really don't know much about the historical practices within this specific period. And then, you know, are we talking about the period in which the, the, the book is published and that the readers are reading about, or, or, or are we expecting the readers to be knowing about earlier periods, you know, 90 years before, like this is getting into historical 
questions that we, we, we really we really don't know. And is there a way of interpreting the text without knowing these things? Uh, does, does the text indicate something scandalous? Well, as far as we can tell, no, it's just the potential is there for something scandalous. That's what I, I think uh, I would say, is that if Joseph went about it differently, then yes, there's the potential for it to have, have turned out into something scandalous. Now, there's one more thing to point out, which has a little bit to do with scandal. So I think that it's worth pointing out in this segment. Uh, it also raises other issues that we'll get back to later on. And that is that it's difficult for us to take seriously that Joseph's plan to divorce Mary quietly is really going to work. I mean, we've just been told that Joseph's not going to say anything to shame Mary, and then we're told that he's planning to divorce her quietly. And we might be wondering, well, hang on, how do those two things fit together? We might have expected that it's saying, it's got, it was going to say, Joseph didn't want to shame Mary, and he decided he would not divorce Mary. So it, it does seem to be a little bit of a tension between these two intentions of Joseph, to, to not shame Mary and to divorce Mary. But it does say he's going to divorce her quietly, which seems to be an important part so maybe Joseph's idea is going to work. It, well, according to what Joseph thinks, Joseph thinks that he he will be able to protect Mary from scandal if he does divorce her. And this is difficult for us to see. How does how does this logically work? And we'll get back to this idea later on. But at this stage, it, it's just worth noticing that a quiet kind of divorce is probably supposed to be telling us well there's nothing for the public to talk about if you know if it's a you know a public kind of divorce then obviously there's something for the public but if it's a private quiet kind of divorce then okay maybe we should try to take this seriously that that Joseph really did think that was going to work and that was really going to protect Mary from being shamed and he's he's never going to say anything about what he knows about the paternity and, you know, he's really actually going to make it work by, by quietly divorcing Mary. The fourth assumption is that the text is talking about Mary becoming pregnant from the Holy Spirit. The text is interested in telling us about Mary becoming pregnant, except it never mentions Mary becoming pregnant. And you might think, well, well, yeah, it does. Of course, it, we've we've even got the word conceived in our translations. Uh, but according to the text, we don't have Mary transitioning from not being pregnant to becoming pregnant. So when we hear about Mary in verse 18, Mary is already pregnant. She already has a pregnant belly from the Holy Spirit. Now that's the first 
missed opportunity where if we're expecting that it should be telling us that Mary became pregnant, well, it's, it's just not how it says it. It just doesn't say that Mary became pregnant from the Holy Spirit. And I think we get a little bit confused with the Gospel of Luke, which does have Mary becoming pregnant. So the angel Gabriel shows up to Mary, turns up and talks about Mary becoming pregnant. And Mary basically says, well, how will I become pregnant? And then the angel explains how Mary will become pregnant. But I don't want to talk about Luke. I want to talk about what's going on in Matthew. Because we tend to assume, you know, we need to read it like we're reading Luke. It needs to be telling us about Mary becoming pregnant. So in verse 18, it doesn't say that Mary became pregnant. It it says that Mary having a pregnant belly became noticeable. So that's the first missed opportunity. Now, the second missed opportunity is in the speech that the angel gives to Joseph, where, where we might be expecting conceived from the Holy Spirit or that Mary became pregnant from the Holy Spirit. But instead, it says that Mary's child is from the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't use was from the Holy Spirit or became um, into being from the Holy Spirit. It doesn't have a verb in the past that's associated with the child's coming into being. So we don't have the language of conception. Instead, we have the language of birth, the begotten one. So this word that I've been translating as the child, this is a noun that's been converted from the verb, the same verb that we had throughout the genealogy, the produced one in this case, but in the genealogy it was he produced, and in verse 16, uh, was produced. And here we have the verb that's no longer a verb, it's been repackaged as a noun, the begotten one. Well, some people like to translate it as the begotten thing, which would be inclusive of the child, including the child, but also the entire pregnancy and the perception around the pregnancy. Uh, I, I prefer to translate it as the child or the begotten one. Uh, taking the neuter as a reference to the child, the, the born one. So either way, we don't have here the language of conception. We have the language of birth. Now, we can't quite force the language into telling us that the child was begotten. This is a noun, the begotten one. Uh, but, but why don't we have the language of, you know, the the child was begotten from the Holy Spirit. Why Why avoid saying it that way? Why avoid this, this opportunity? This is the, the second time that it's a missed opportunity to be telling us that Mary became pregnant. Isn't that what it's supposed to be telling us about Mary becoming pregnant? But instead, we've got language of birth. What's going on? We might wonder, what is going on? Uh, because this does seem to be deliberate. It's skipped over talking about Mary becoming 
pregnant. And this is getting us really into the intended meaning here, because this doesn't seem to be an accidental thing that's that's missing with it. You know, the writer just forgot to mention Mary becoming pregnant, uh, or that Mary became pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's not just a, you know, whoops, forgot to mention it once and then forgot to mention it a second time. Why avoid, in verse 18, saying that Mary became pregnant from the Holy Spirit and avoid it again at the end of verse 20, saying avoiding saying that Mary became pregnant from the Holy Spirit? What What is this avoidance about? So I'd like to give a series of reasons, uh, including some more considered reasons. So the ones that first come to mind and then some other reasons which are a little bit more considered. Okay, so the first thing that comes to mind is that it's avoiding sounding like there's some kind of male input, uh, like like that Mary has been impregnated. So avoiding talking about male seed. There's no male contribution that's that's mentioned, as if it just does not want to sound like that Mary has been impregnated. And one reason to avoid sounding like impregnation is to perhaps avoid sounding like Greek mythology, where Greek gods impregnate human women, and then the, the, these women give birth to demigods, and it just doesn't want to sound like that. Uh, but if we're going to think about Greek mythology, then we should probably think about Jewish mythology that we find in the Book of Enoch. So the first Book of Enoch has a retelling from something from Genesis chapter 6, where it, it interprets the story as being about rogue angelic beings that take human wives and produce offspring, and, and these this offspring introduce bad things into the world and, and, and cause the flood. And so I think if we're going to talk about Greek mythology, we should probably also consider that it's just as much, or if not more likely, to be the Jewish mythology that we find in the Book of Enoch. It doesn't want to sound like that. Another reason that it might want to avoid sounding like male impregnation of Mary is that it doesn't want to make the Holy Spirit uh, sound like it's in a masculine role. It doesn't want to sound like it's the father begetter. It doesn't want to sound like you know, divine begetting from from God. So Jesus is not begotten from a male seed. Jesus is the begotten one, but not Jesus was begotten from. It might be wanting to to avoid to avoid sounding like that. Um, but but not just that. It might actually be trying to avoid talking about a human father. It doesn't want to mention a biological human father. And now this tends to backfire a little bit because when some people realize, oh, it doesn't want me to think about a biological father then they immediately start thinking of a human biological father. And so some scholars will go looking for the biological father because the text is avoiding talking about a biological father. And everyone knows, including the earliest audience of the book of Matthew, everyone knows that everybody has a biological father, surely. So why not go looking for 
a biological father, which seems to backfire a bit from like, because the text doesn't want us to think about it and it doesn't want to talk about it. So we, we start thinking about it and talking about it. Now, another reason is that perhaps it just doesn't want to seem invasive to Mary's body. So remember, this is the angel speaking to Joseph, and perhaps it's just inappropriate for the angel be, to be speaking to Joseph in about Mary in such a way that's talking about Mary's body being impregnated. It's just, it's just inappropriate. I mean, if it was Joseph's body and Joseph was the one having the child, then perhaps the angel would have spoken to Joseph differently. But it's not Joseph's body that the angel's speaking about. So maybe it's just a more respectful way that the angel is speaking. And notice that Mary isn't actually the subject of this sentence. Mary's child is the subject. And this actually makes a lot of sense, because this is the beginning where the angel is announcing the child into the world. So the angel has just spoken the first sentence to Joseph, which is instructions about going ahead with the marriage. And now the angel is speaking the first part of four sentences announcing the child into the world. It's an annunciation formula. So it would make more sense that it's just more interested in the child and the child's future than in Mary and Mary's past. Now, there's one final reason which I'd like to mention, and it has several of the previous elements in in the explanation. And that is that if the angel is wanting to persuade Joseph to step into a paternal role, then it would make sense not to talk about any kind of previous paternal role. Uh, because that would undermine the message that the angel is trying to communicate. The angel's trying to set up the situation to, to make it ready for Joseph. There's this role for Joseph to fill. Joseph is being invited to step into that role, being invited to be known as the father. So why mention a previous father? That would seem to undermine the point that the angel is trying to prepare Joseph for that role. Why make it sound like that role has already been filled in some way? It just wouldn't seem to make as much sense as what we've got here at the end of verse 20 and then moving on to the beginning of verse 21 for for the entire Annunciation formula. The fifth assumption is that Joseph was expected to hand Mary over to be put on trial, to be sentenced to death if he assumed that Mary had committed adultery. Is this what Joseph was expected to do? The short answer is no. And the long answer is very long, and it's probably far too long for this episode. But I will give five reasons why, no, that doesn't seem to be what we've got going on in this particular story. Uh, but I think it's probably, first of all, a good idea to say, well, what, where does the idea come from? Isn't it possible that that's what the expectation was? And well, where the idea comes from is 
our willingness to explore historical speculations for what do we think might have happened. And one thing that this assumption seems to have going for it is that it seems to be adding additional information that's historical in order to make sense of Joseph's decision, which isn't very clearly explained. And so it's giving us historical or allegedly historical background. Well, which period of time do we want to reconstruct? Do we want to reconstruct the period of the time that the book was published, maybe in the Galilee? Um, or, but many people say, well, up in Syria, the book of Matthew is published up there in the late first century. Is that the time period we're, we're thinking of? The audience is, is thinking of their own laws and customs that they're familiar with? Or are we thinking, well, you know, we want to reconstruct the time period that the story is set? So not the, the time that the story was published, but the time back in the days of Herod I. And we should also keep in mind that this interpretation of, okay, well, the laws and customs expected Joseph to hand Mary over, to be put on trial, to be sentenced to death. This assumption, which is quite common uh, throughout the centuries, this assumption comes from a non-Jewish background. Every time we hear this assumption, it seems to be someone who does not have a Jewish background that is making this assumption. Although I should point out something interesting in this regard. Uh, if we fast forward to the Middle Ages, so the Middle Ages, there is, in the Middle Ages, there is a Hebrew version of Matthew that uh, is known. And in some of the Hebrew manuscripts of Hebrew Matthew, there's an extra clause. So in between where it says he did not want to shame her, and he decided he would divorce her, we have this extra clause that says he did not want to hand her over to be put to death. And this is exactly our assumption. We, we find it in a text. Well, it's a Hebrew text, and it's from the Middle Ages, but, but this is the, the assumption that we're dealing with. Now, is the translator thinking that they're adding something new? Well, no. Usually when we find a translation that has something added in, the translator is not trying to add something new in. The translator is trying to expand on, on what they think is implied already in the text. And so who is translating this, I wonder? I would probably say that it's probably a Christian missionary translation. And one reason why I would say that is that in the recent commentaries on Matthew, uh, in, the, in the recent Jewish commentaries on Matthew, I should say, in the last few decades, there's been a few Jewish commentaries written by Jewish commentators, and they do not have this assumption. Uh, they have a different assumption. They have the expectation of divorce whenever there's the sus suspicion of adultery. And so I don't want to really go further into trying to figure out what the Hebrew version of Matthew is, what, what's going on there. I'd rather stick to the Greek which has got enough enough issues of, of its own. but So if we're trying to figure out, well, what's going on in the Greek, Matthew, uh, when it says, you know, Joseph did not want to disgrace Mary, what's going on? Uh, how do we 
how do we interpret that? Uh, do we need to try to reconstruct the historical circumstances? So, okay, so I'll get back to... Uh, all right, so what about... What about the clear no? So that's, that's as much as I'm willing to, to look at for the possible yes. Let, now let's look at the the no. Okay, the first reason that it looks like no, Joseph is not being expected to hand Mary over to be put on trial, to be executed. The first reason is, well, that it, it makes Joseph seem like he is better than how the biblical law was interpreted. So it makes it look like we're saying that Joseph is better than the biblical law. Joseph is resisting the biblical commandments and how biblical commandments were were uh, interpreted. And this doesn't seem very compatible with what we find elsewhere in Matthew. In fact, it seems a little bit anti-Jewish uh, uh, to have this assumption. And as Amy Jill Levine often says, we don't need to make Judaism look bad in order to make Jesus look good. Or in our case, we don't need to make the kind of Judaism of Joseph's day look bad in order to make Joseph look better. So that's the first reason that it doesn't fit with Matthew. All right, so the second reason why this assumption doesn't work is that Joseph's situation is very different to the kind of situations that we see over in Deuteronomy 22, which is which is where most scholars go to in order to look at the execution laws in Deuteronomy 22. We've got six hypothetical cases over in Deuteronomy 22, and some of them are, are about adultery. But in every one of those cases, it's a public matter. It's already public. The public have already caught the man and caught the woman, or they've got confessions, and, and they know what's going on. It's become public. These hypothetical cases are about a public matter. What does the community do now? How, how do they... How do they deal with it now? Except that's not what we find in Joseph's case. There's no public knowledge and no public discussion. There's no public awareness of, of, an, of an issue. There's no man that's been caught with, with Mary. Mary hasn't been caught with anyone. So there isn't a public issue. So should Joseph be trying to make it a public issue? Is that, is that what we're really saying? Well, actually, the, the first case, the first hypothetical case of the slanderous husband, perhaps Joseph's case could turn out to be a little bit like that case if he went public, because in that case, the slanderous husband went public and he, he shouldn't have. So he was being portrayed as, as being not happy with his wife, that he's just married, and but but so we so he went around slandering her and saying that he didn't think she was a virgin when he married her, and the text is saying no that, that the the slanderous husband shouldn't have done that. That was the wrong way of go if he had a problem. It's the wrong way of going about dealing with a problem. So perhaps Joseph is doing the right thing by not behaving like the slanderous husband from Deuteronomy twenty two. Now the third reason that Joseph was not expected to hand Mary over to be executed, is that's just not how the Jewish law courts worked. 
the, the, the Jewish law courts didn't go executing men and women caught in adultery. That's just not apparently how the courts functioned. And similarly, a very similar reason, is that we can see that in other scriptures where adultery is mentioned, uh, most of the time when we hear adultery being mentioned, and we can look at, well, what's the assumed outcome? What's the assumed way of dealing with, with it that people actually day-to-day uh, dealt with it? We don't find the assumption of execution. So there's a couple of proverbs we could look at. There's Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, uh, where we find a certificate of divorce, um, and also the idea that an, that an adulterous wife could even be welcomed back, perhaps. And we've also got Numbers chapter 5, from verses 11 to 31. So it's quite a long passage, which is, which is about a suspicious husband who is, is very jealous of, of his wife. So he, he thinks that his wife has committed adultery, but she hasn't been caught. He, he can't prove it. He doesn't have any evidence. But he, he's, he thinks that she's committed adultery and he doesn't know what to do. And he wants to take her back, but, he, but she, he thinks she's committed adultery. So he just doesn't know what to do. And so it's about, okay, well, this is sort of like a trial that, that he can put her on. And if it turns out that she is actually guilty of adultery, then no, she's not executed. So we can also see here that Joseph is not like the jealous husband in Numbers chapter 5, who is overcome with a spirit of jealousy. He wants to be able to receive his wife back. But in Joseph's situation, Joseph's not like the jealous husband overcome with a spirit of jealousy. Uh, Joseph is willing to let Mary go. The fourth reason is that Joseph is not even allowed to bring accusations against Mary according to biblical law. So according to biblical law, unless there are multiple witnesses who have seen the act, multiple witnesses uh, to a crime, then no, a solitary witness is not allowed to try to begin a trial. It's just not a legitimate trial. It's just not proper due process for, for a court to be able to deal out justice if if there aren't multiple witnesses. Otherwise, it's just one person's word against another person's word. Uh, you need to have multiple uh, witnesses, multiple tes- testimonies. And otherwise, if a solitary witness tries to 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 uh, bring accusations, it'll just end up being defamatory. There's just no, there's no purpose to it other than to defame someone, and that that's also considered to be well against biblical law. To, you know, to try to bring charges as a solitary witness, that's and it's going to end up being defamatory, uh, which could end up you know ruining a person's life or endangering someone's life. That that's again again that's not according to biblical law. So we can see that according to Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, Joseph is not supposed to be trying to go public. Okay, a fifth reason why Joseph is not expected to be going public, uh, to bring Mary to trial for execution, is that divorce is the usual outcome for adultery. 
And we can see this in Deuteronomy 24. Well, the way that Deuteronomy 24 came to be understood. So even though Deuteronomy 24 wasn't originally about uh, uh, adultery leading to divorce and what's the reason, what's the exact reasons that cause divorce, but but that's the way that Deuteronomy 24 ends up being interpreted uh, by the first century. The original intention is where a husband is not allowed to take his wife back if she was very clearly divorced from him. Uh, everyone knew she was clearly divorced from him and she married somebody else and then the second husband divorced her. The first husband can't take her back. But because it contains something about the reason for the divorce, well, by the first century, well, what's the reason? The matter of indecency. A matter of indecency. What could a matter of indecency refer to? And so this is what we find in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19. Jesus gets drawn into this discussion of this reason for divorce. Uh, And Jesus says, except for pornea, which we usually translate as adultery, uh, which seems to be the reason for divorce. So Jesus is saying, well, except for pornea, uh, you know, men who divorce their wives, it's not a valid divorce. And so when Jesus says, except for pornea, then that seems to be a way of interpreting this debate of what does Deuteronomy 24 mean when it talks about a matter of indecency. So it seems that the, by the first century, the, the natural outcome for adultery is divorce, which is why Jesus is reversing it. So, you know, people are assuming that adultery leads to divorce. And Jesus is saying, well, people are using using divorce to lead to adultery. So Jesus is reversing this this link uh, between adultery and divorce and making it about divorce and adultery. So we can see this common link between divorce and adultery as if that's the assumed outcome. Uh, by the first century, it's assumed that, yeah, divorce is the assumed outcome of suspected adultery. So altogether, we can see that Joseph, no, he is not apparently expected to be bringing accusations and starting a trial against Mary so that she could be executed for adultery. The sixth assumption is that Joseph thought that Mary had committed adultery and that's why he didn't want to be married to her. He assumed she was guilty of having committed adultery. And so the fifth assumption is basically we're saying that Joseph had wrongly assumed. We usually say that Joseph is getting it right eventually but only because an angel intervened. But he's actually making the wrong decision. He's actually getting it wrong. He's misjudged the situation. He's misjudged Mary. And he's about to do the wrong thing. And then the the angel has to correct Joseph's wrong assumptions and, and has to defend Mary. So when we look at this assumption, is it coming from the text? Well, the text isn't actually telling us what Joseph is thinking. The text doesn't say anything about adultery, but that doesn't mean that we're not expected to read adultery into the story in order to make sense of the story. So 
it does seem that the text is written with the expectation that we we can figure out to some degree what Joseph was thinking in order to make sense of what Joseph was doing. But we've got to know what Joseph is doing in order to figure out what Joseph was thinking. So there's a bit of a, a cycle here that um, it can be a bit vicious because whatever we put in this cycle will just recirculate. And uh, so if we're thinking that Joseph is assuming that Mary was guilty, once, once this gets in the loop, then we see that um, recirculating back and forth, whichever way we try to, to read it. We've got, we've, we're stuck in this loop of, well, Joseph's thinking that Mary has committed adultery. Now, there is some evidence that we're supposed to assume something uh, of, about adultery or read into the text something like adultery. And this is where it's important to distinguish between adultery as our language and what would be the category that would be a more ancient category, and that is pornia. So pornia is a Greek word that we often translate as adultery, but it's to do with a category of forbidden unions. So uh, any unsanctioned sexual union, that uh, it's unsanctioned in the sight of God, and the community is supposed to be aware of it and on, on the alert to, to avoid these kinds of forbidden unions. And so this is an important distinction. To If we can begin to use the word pornia, instead of adultery, we'll actually get somewhere. Well, you know, wh- why do we need to make this a distinction? It'll become clearer as we, as we go further along in, in the analysis. Okay, so where does the idea of pornia come, come into the text? How, how is it relevant in, in this case? Well, this is where we need to think about, well, what were the early audiences expected to read into the text? Or what was, what was what's the first thing that's most likely to come to mind when they hear a story about a man named Joseph, identified as being righteous? Are they going to think of another story that, that would come to mind? Well, yes. The first Joseph, the first man to be called Joseph in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. And that's Joseph, son of Jacob. And what do you know? The second Joseph in the book of Matthew chapter 1 is also Joseph, son of Jacob. Now, is there anything else that would, would come to mind then for the, for, the, for the first audience? We tend to think these days, dreams, it must be dreams. The earliest audience must have been thinking the first Joseph had dreams and the second Joseph has dreams. Well, the first Joseph is very good at interpreting dreams. He can interpret his own dreams and he can interpret other people's dreams and he can apply that to people's lives. Uh, and the second Joseph has an angel of the Lord appear to him in a dream a few times and give him specific instructions about what to do. So it's a different kind of dream altogether. That's not necessarily what would immediately come to mind as being, oh, they're both, they're both the same in that regard. But of all the things that the first Joseph is renowned for, what would it become, what, the reason why he became, became known to the rabbis as Joseph the Righteous is because of his stance against Pornia. So here we have the first Joseph is now being referred to as Joseph the Righteous by, by the early 
centuries, not long after Matthew was written. And so um, even in even at Matthew's, even in the time that Matthew was written, Joseph was renowned for his stance against Pornia, and that's what made him righteous. So even before the title Joseph the Righteous became a title, he was already renowned for being righteous because of his stance against Pornia. So in the first Joseph's story of resistance to Pornia, where he refuses to commit adultery with Potiphar's wife uh, on several occasions, and then uh, eventually uh, he ends up getting thrown into prison uh, because he's falsely accused of attempted rape. And um, so if we think, okay, well, the first Joseph was was fleeing an adulterous woman, literally fleeing an, an adulterous woman. Is the second Joseph fleeing from an adulterous woman? Well, this is where it pays to remember Pornia is the category, because the first Joseph was accused of attempted rape immediately after this, and that is Pornia, because rape is also a kind of Pornia. It fits in the same category of Pornia. So incest is also a kind of Pornia. Forbidden um, relationship, uh, intermarrying is a kind of Pornia. So there's various kinds of Pornia. So the, the first audience of the book of Matthew is probably aware that the first Joseph is renowned for resisting Pornia. And so this really might be something that's quite relevant for the, for the case of the second Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, where he is apparently resisting Pornia. Now, this the bit that we, we get stuck on is that the blame, we, we put blame into the picture because Joseph could be resisting Pornia without necessarily thinking that Mary is to blame for the Pornia. So, yes, Joseph's planned divorce or quiet divorce might be indicating his resistance to some kind of Pornia. But as soon as we add blame into the mix, Something doesn't work. Something doesn't add up. So what I would like to do is to indicate why blame doesn't quite work. Because usually the assumption is that Joseph doesn't want other people to blame Mary, but Joseph himself is blaming Mary in his own mind. So he doesn't want other people to suspect what he suspects. Now, this sounds like a logical assumption. It sounds like this is what's going on. But once we break down this assumption and have a a close look at it, it just doesn't work with the text. Okay, so when we look at the evidence in the text, if we were looking for signs in the text, some kind of evidence in the text, that Joseph really was blaming Mary for, for being an adulterous woman, then well, we don't find the evidence in the text. In fact, we find it it points in a different direction. The signs that we do have point in the opposite direction. It keeps pointing away from a blaming Joseph. So the first point, the first thing to notice is that Joseph, by not checking with Mary how many weeks pregnant she's been or who's, who's whose child it is or what's going on. But Joseph not wanting to check out the situation about what's going on, but holding this assumption of guilt, it just doesn't fit with the portrait 
that that's, that is of Joseph being a righteous kind of person. So a righteous kind of person doesn't just assume and not bother to check. Uh, you know, what about the benefit of the doubt? Like, does Joseph just really assume that he knows exactly how many weeks pregnant Mary has has been, and and how many how many weeks they've been already betrothed? I mean, what if Mary is five months pregnant, but they've only been betrothed for four and a half months? So it just it just seems to make Joseph seem very judgmental to be holding to such an assumption without really checking that assumption out. Yeah, it just seems um, like it doesn't fit with what we've got in the text. The second thing to point out is that it makes Joseph seem hypocritical. If, if he's not wanting other people to blame Mary, but but he's blaming Mary in his mind. So he's, he's being the judge and jury in his mind. He doesn't want to put Mary on trial publicly, but he's happy to to judge Mary privately in his mind, that just makes Joseph seem hypocritical. The third thing to notice is that Joseph isn't being rebuked very strongly. I mean, if it is a rebuke at all, um, the angel doesn't seem to be admonishing Joseph for doing the wrong thing uh, or thinking the, thinking the wrong thing about Mary. It seems to be a very gentle encouragement to just be married. Um but um, yeah, it doesn't seem to be a very strong rebuke. And also, the angel doesn't seem to be defending Mary. In, in the second sentence that the angel says, it doesn't seem to be very, very defensive about Mary's past. I mean, Mary's not even the subject of the sentence. And the, it, we expect that the angel is really trying to say, well, Mary is innocent. Mary has not committed adultery. But that's but that's not quite what, what the text is seemingly presenting. It's presenting a, a very uh, gentle affirmation of, of the child, um, which does seem to, to fit with the idea of it being an annunciation. This is supposed to be about announcing the child and the child's future and how important the child is. So it makes sense that the angel isn't really focusing on Mary, the angel's focusing on the child. But we tend to read it as if Joseph's being rebuked for his wrong attitude, and then Mary is being defended against Joseph's internal accusations. But that doesn't seem to be really what's going on in the text. The next thing to notice is that Joseph doesn't seem to be very sorry, uh, as if his his his, his attitude is a problem, but it hasn't shifted. But really, it's his actions that, that are presented as being shifted. It says he got up and he did what he was told to do by the angel of the Lord. So this is probably why we don't find that Joseph is sorry, because it's not his attitude that's being presented as changing. Another thing to notice is that it doesn't say that Joseph didn't want to marry Mary. He didn't want to marry Mary, and he decided he wouldn't shame her. But no, 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 that's that's the wrong way around. It says he didn't want to shame her, and he decided he would divorce her quietly. And so I think sometimes we read it as if it's the other way around, and I mean it's easy to confuse these two things because they're both about Joseph's intention to to avoid something, so to avoid shame and to avoid being married. Um, but it's not necessarily saying that Joseph didn't didn't want to be married to Mary anymore, uh, as if he, he had no desire to be married to. To Mary, it's like some sort of personal aversion uh, to Mary, but 
No, that's not necessarily what the text is saying. So perhaps Joseph is not being judgmental and hypocritical and needing to be rebuked and Mary needing to be defended against Joseph's wrong attitude. And perhaps it's not that Joseph had an aversion to Mary and he, he didn't want to be married to Mary because of, of assuming that she was guilty of adultery. So is there something that fits better than what, what with what we do have? Yes, there is. The word that we translate shame, when it says that he did not want to shame her, can also indicate blame. When we see this word for shame, he did not want to shame Mary or expose her to public scrutiny. So he doesn't want to see her ridiculed. And so we usually focus on the public part of it, like bringing it to public. And we we miss that it could also be indicating that not only does Joseph want to avoid other people blaming Mary, but maybe he's not even blaming Mary himself. Maybe he's not even considering that Mary is as a guilty person. Maybe he's not considering that, that Mary is to blame. Well, one thing that does seem clear is that Joseph doesn't want Mary to be blamed by other people. So this is the point where we tend to get stuck on. But is Joseph himself blaming Mary in, in his mind? He doesn't want other people to blame her. Uh, he's protecting her from public ridicule. But what's Joseph himself thinking is going on? Now, it could be that we just aren't being given that information. Uh, but we can say that, that Joseph is thinking of divorce. And somehow that is protecting Mary from being publicly ridiculed. A quiet kind of divorce will be will be a protective kind of thing. He doesn't want it to look like Mary is guilty of adultery. Now that doesn't necessarily tell us whether or not Joseph himself is blaming Mary for being guilty. If Joseph thinks Mary is to blame, it doesn't quite seem to go that far. Basically, what I'm suggesting is that Joseph could be resisting pornea. And it seems like Joseph is being presented as resisting some kind of pornea, but not in a blaming way. So could Joseph be resisting pornea without blaming Mary? we come to my favourite part of the episode where I get to talk about something in the text that helps us to understand the text. So uh, we've, we've by now had to let go of a lot of assumptions that we thought might be helping us to make sense of the text, but these assumptions really weren't helping. They just weren't compatible with the text and they just didn't end up helping us. So this is where I get to talk about something in the text that we can find that will make sense of the text. And it turns out there is something else in verse 19 that's there in order for us to be able to make more sense of what's going on with Joseph's decision. 
So let's have a look. Here we go. The text says that Joseph decided he would divorce Mary. But it doesn't just say that Joseph decided to divorce Mary. It says Joseph decided to divorce Mary quietly, which is a shift in in, in talking about not just what he's going to do, but how he's going to do it. So we can see that the text is interested in how Joseph is going about making his decision. So it's more than just it's more than just what he's doing, but it's the ethic. It, it, it's it's something ethical that that we can we can see the manner of, of the way that Joseph goes about things. It's it's an ethical manner, and so not only do we have the, this this mention of quietly. Uh, we also have something just before it, which is it says, you know, that he didn't, he, he wasn't willing to to blame Mary, which we we could think, okay, well, maybe the quietly is an explanation of, you know, he doesn't want to blame Mary, so okay, so he's keeping everything quiet. Um, well, yes, but there's actually quite a lot more going on. In fact, we've got two things that are very important in helping us to unpack what's going on in verse 19. Uh, so what are these two things that are, that are just before? So before it says that he, he would divorce her quietly, and before it says that he was not willing to blame her or shame her, it says two other little things, and they, they seem, well, like small things, but they turn out to be quite big things. So we've got uh, Joseph. So it starts with identifying Joseph by name, which doesn't really, um, well, I suppose it is an important part to identify Joseph by name. And then it, it says her husband, and then it says being righteous. So these two things, her husband, being righteous. So it could have just said Joseph decided to divorce her quietly. But we've got Joseph, her husband, being righteous, not wanting to shame her, decided he would divorce her quietly. So we've got quite a few things that it seems, you know, is it, is it just um, redundant? We've got a few things here that, like, they're not all necessary, are they? Like, they do seem a little bit redundant. Except uh, they're there to help us unpack what's going on. So if we can focus on these two little extra bits, uh, uh, immediately after it identifies Joseph, her husband, and being righteous. Okay, so her husband, which, okay, we didn't really need to know that Joseph is the husband, because we already knew from verse 16 that Joseph was the husband. And we already knew from verse 18 that Joseph uh, was the husband, or the betrothed husband. And so why are we finding out here again that Joseph's the husband? So, okay, that's something that will become clearer uh, as we go. But we can see for now that this is slowing the story down and focusing on Joseph, the husband. So it's focusing on Joseph. He's about to do something. He's about to make a decision. And that decision is important. It's going to affect uh, the story. 
And I should probably point out that the word husband, that we translate as husband, it's just the word man. And so it's just according to context, whether we think it means man or husband. It's not like there's a separate Greek word for husband. Uh, It's just the word man. And same with wife. Uh, There's not a separate word for wife. It's just the word woman. So it's just according to context. Uh, You know, if it's a marital context, then we will translate it uh, accordingly as husband and wife instead of man and woman. So, okay, here we go. We've got Joseph is the husband. He's about to make a decision. So then it says being righteous. Now, this seems to be quite an important thing to point out. It seems to be key uh, in order to understand Joseph's decision. Now, what it would what would be helpful would be to know what exactly does it mean because it seems like it's defining for us uh, you know the framework so that we can understand Joseph's decision except what would be the the definition of this word righteous uh, so the Greek word is dikaios uh, and the Hebrew equivalent would be zadik uh, and so I'll, I'll try and stick to the Greek dikaios, uh, but I'll, I'll probably end up just using the word righteous, which is the standard English translation. Now, why are we told that Joseph is righteous? It would be helpful to have a definition for this particular context, because we could get definitions from all over the place. We could see how it's used in, in various applications and how we might find a contextual meaning in various applications throughout the New Testament, but they're, they're, not, they're not going to be perfect and not going to be perfect fit. I mean, that would work work for a, you know, that would work to a degree. Uh, we could get a definition from the Gospel of Luke. The first chapter of Luke gives us a definition of the kind of righteousness that Elizabeth and Zechariah have. That's not going to be perfect for Matthew. So what we need is something else in Matthew that has something that's similar to this context, similar to the way that's being used in Matthew chapter 1. Is there anything else in other chapters? Well, there's lots of references to righteousness in general, righteous people, unrighteous people, but no, no, it's not really often used of a specific person like like it is in chapter 1, except for two other cases. So um, Jesus refers to Abel as righteous, and then towards the end of the book, Pilate's wife refers to Jesus as righteous. So what does it mean in these other two cases? I mean, they're not exactly the same as Matthew chapter 1, because Matthew chapter 1, the, the narrator is introducing a character as being righteous. Whereas when Jesus refers to Abel as righteous, it's narrated as if Jesus is a character in the story, referring to another character from long ago. And then later on, Pilate's wife refers to Jesus as righteous. So it's not exactly the same, but at least it is an example of a known character being introduced as righteous or vikaos, which is quite similar to to what we find in Matthew chapter 1. Now, if you look at both of these other times, these two other times in later on in Matthew, we see that, well... It means not guilty of doing something. So Abel is referred to as innocent. He's not guilty of 
the crime that, that was committed against him. He didn't provoke his brother. He's not guilty of, of, of that. It's his brother that was, was guilty. Um, and then when Jesus is referred to as the chaos by Pilate's wife, again, it means not guilty. Don't, don't execute this man. He, he is not guilty of the charges that, um, that are being brought against him. Now, there are two earlier cases, earlier scriptures, where we also find the narrator introducing someone as Vikaios, or in Hebrew, Zadik. And we might think, well, surely there's more than just two, but for some reason, it was, it's quite a rare thing in the Jewish scriptures to introduce a known character and then say that this character is righteous. So the two, the, the two characters are Noah and Job. So Noah is introduced as righteous, and in that case it means not guilty of the kinds of crimes that that, that generation were, were guilty of. It, it's a corrupt generation, but uh, Noah is not, not guilty of, of that. He is different. Um, he's not guilty of the, those kind of crimes. And Job, similarly, Job is going through some tough times. He's suffering through some things. His friends are telling him that he, he must be guilty of doing something in particular. Uh, but no, he is not guilty of doing something to upset God, even though his friends think he must be. So we've got a fairly consistent definition going here already, that the basic primary meaning of Vikaos is it characterizes someone as by what they're not guilty of, by what they're not doing. It's not so much focusing on the good things that they are doing, but but the things that they are avoiding. Uh, Noah, Job, Abel, Jesus, in all of these cases, the two before Matthew, the two later on in Matthew, not guilty is the primary, or innocent, I suppose we would say, innocent. But there's more, because there are other layers um, which, which are easy to see in the case of Noah and Job. There are other layers of meaning where it's not just that Noah is not guilty of those crimes at that particular time. You know, he, he almost was guilty, but he didn't. Like he, not, No, it's not saying that he... he he had a tendency to do it at other at, at, at other times. In other words, it's not saying that he was inclined to do those things. He's not that kind of person. So that's the second layer, is it's identifying something about the person in general. Same with Job. He's just not that kind of person. It, it doesn't just mean, well, he didn't happen to, to do something that, to upset God in that situation, but but he's just not that kind of person to do the sort of things that the friends are assuming that, that, that everybody does. And this brings us to the third layer of meaning, which is why why is the writer or the narrator, why is it being pointed out to us as the readers and the hearers? Why is this character being identified as the chaos or Zadik or righteous? Well, it's to do with them being not like what you might expect from 
most other people. It's not typical. They're not a typical example. So Noah is not a typical example of someone from his generation. Uh, Job is not a typical example of someone from his generation. And the writer is pointing it out in order to provide a meta perspective to, to bring us as the audience into this meta perspective, looking back in hindsight and saying, look, there's something different about the person. They are not an example of an average man from that period. Um, there, there's something else to, to notice about them. Uh, something atypical uh, that um, it's not just that they're not, not like other people in general, but there's something about them that, that tells us a story, that their story stands out, that, that their story stands for something. And they can begin to be representative of of something in contrast to what we might have assumed. And so we can see this a little bit in the case of, of Abel and Jesus. Later on in Matthew, it's not, not as strong as in Noah and Job, but it still has these other layers where not only does it mean that Abel was not guilty of of um, of the situation that he, he found himself in. He was not culpable. Uh, it means, you know, he's, he just wasn't that kind of person. He wasn't the kind of person to go around provoking his brother. And the third layer is, why is he being mentioned as righteous? Well, that's because he stands for something. He stands out as, as giving us a story, where his story stands out um, as an example, as a testimony to injustice. Um, and same with Jesus' case, later on in the book of Matthew, Jesus is not prone to, to be a terrorist. I mean, he's just not guilty of the, of the charges, but he, he's, not, he's just not that sort of person. Like, they've got the wrong guy. Uh, you know, he's not that kind of person. And the third layer is, well, why is it that, that we hear about this, this mention? Uh, why is the narrator mentioning that Pilate's wife said it? Well, it's it's to bring us again into uh, into a perspective that says our assumptions aren't going to be the usual assumptions aren't aren't going to be working because this isn't a usual case. There's something different about Jesus. Uh, so in all these cases, we can see that 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 this is actually helping us quite a lot. Well, <laughs> we might initially think. How is all this helping us? Um, Joseph isn't being accused of of being guilty of something. It's not Joseph that's being accused of being guilty of something, is it? What's Joseph not guilty of? Um, this should really actually make us think, well, does it apply to Joseph's case? It does seem like it should, but it, how does it apply? All right, this is where it gets interesting, because we can see that if we're on the right track, the very next thing that we find out about Joseph should be to do with these layers of, of meaning that we've that we've discovered. It should be telling us about what Joseph is avoiding that other people would not have avoided or would tend to have not avoided. But Joseph is not like other people from his generation. He's, he's just not like your typical man. And sure enough, the very next thing, after saying Joseph, her husband being righteous, and not wanting to shame her. So here we get this, this avoidance of something that other people might not have been so good at avoiding. I mean, other people 
other men, I should say, um, because all of these cases so far have been dealing with men. So it does seem like it might be relevant to be to be using the, the masculine pronouns. Other men may have been prone to say something that would end up disgracing Mary. I mean, how difficult would it be to not say anything? He knows he's not the father, but just to not tell anyone. This is this is being said as atypical. This is not this is the right thing to do as well, but it's it's also it's also not common to find that as you know something that we would expect that everyone would be able to do, or that other men would be be able to do because other men would be inclined to accidentally say something and end up shaming Mary. Now, there's actually a second thing that it says that Joseph is avoiding, and that is to be married to Mary. Joseph is avoiding being married to Mary. Um, well, okay, why? This is, this is the question that we, we want to know. Well, why? But we can at least see that it is another thing that Joseph is resisting. He's avoiding. And it fits into this pattern of where we're being told two things that Joseph is avoiding. Other people might not have been able to avoid these two things. Um, now, the second one is harder for us to understand. Because in the first case, we could see, okay, well, we can understand why Joseph would want to avoid shaming Mary. But why would he want to avoid being married to Mary? Uh, because it seems like it's assuming that other people would not necessarily have been able to avoid being married to Mary. Because if you're following the logic, it seems to be assuming that Joseph is not like other people in what he is deciding to do. He's doing something that's different to what many other people, or I should say many other men, would be inclined to do. Other men would either have been inclined to say something and to shame Mary, or to stay married with Mary. And in order to see this a bit more clearly, we need to look at the four choices, or the four, yeah, the four choices that are, that are put before Joseph. Because these two things could go could have gone one of each of these two things could have gone one of two ways. So each each of these two things is really two things. So it means that we've got four choices, and we can plot this multiple choice out. I find it helpful to plot it out in a little chart. So we've got two columns. First column's to do with saying about the paternity, um, and the next column's to do with not saying anything about the paternity. Um, and then intersecting with that, we've got two rows. And so, uh, so the, the bottom row is about not staying married. So the, the top row is about staying married. And the bottom row is about not staying married. So altogether, we get the first column, we've got A and B. Choice A is to say something about the paternity and to stay married. And then choice B would be to say something about the paternity and not stay married. And then moving to the second column, we have choice C, 
which is to not say anything about the paternity and to stay married. And then in choice D, we have to not say anything about the paternity and to not stay married, which which is the option that Joseph is uh, going for, or he's planning to go for option D. And uh, once we've charted it out, it actually makes it easier to see what are these four choices and how how do they um, relate to um, what Joseph is doing. So we can see now that, that, that Joseph's going for choice D, which is the both of the negative choices, uh, to avoid having Mary be shamed, and also to avoid being married to Mary, which initially we're still not quite sure, like, why is it that other people wouldn't do that? Why is it other people would be inclined to do that? But Joseph isn't. Joseph is not inclined to do that. All right, so if we look a little bit more closely at um, each of these, so looking at A, choice A. Now, choice A, what does it say about that kind of person who would go for choice A? To say something, but to stay married. Well, this ends up showing us that there would be some kind of perceived link between the saying and the staying. So this kind of person, who is, is not Joseph, but somebody else in Joseph's situation, who says something about the paternity, goes around telling everyone, oh, well, no, the child's not mine. The child's not mine, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to raise the child. Uh, you know, uh, aren't, I, aren't I generous? and so benevolent. And it, it makes it look very much self-righteous. It's a promotional, self-promotional righteousness, which is very different to the kind of righteousness that we see that Jesus says to promote in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus is talking about a hidden kind of righteousness that's not promoting it so that nobody sees it. It's just a hidden kind of Righteousness. So, choice A is definitely not a hidden kind of righteousness. It's it's very much a self-promotional, um, look at me, look how good I am kind of kind of uh, righteousness. Okay, now let's move on to choice B. So that would be to say something about the paternity and to not stay married. Now, in this option, we can see again that there is a link between the two that's being pointed out so that people know the reason why the divorce happens in this situation. This kind of person says the reason. They say what they know about the paternity uh, and that becomes the reason for the divorce. Um, again, this is not Joseph's... This is not the Joseph that we're presented with in Matthew chapter 1. Now, if we go over to choice C, so we're down in the next column, which is about not saying. So choice C would be to not say anything about the paternity and to stay married. Now, this is the, this is the choice that the angel recommends that Joseph does. And so we, we tend to think, we tend to assume, oh, well, this must be the most righteous one. Um, but no, um, according to the text, Joseph is choosing the most 
righteous one, which would be D, which be, would be to not say anything, but also not to claim that the child is his and claim Mary as his wife. So if we're looking at C and D, um, what, what, we can, what we can say about C at this stage is, all right, there must be a reason why Joseph didn't choose C, because the difference between C and D is, is not staying. So they're both about not saying, but C is about not saying and not staying. D is about not saying and not staying. So when the angel modifies Joseph's plan, uh, the angel doesn't modify the not saying part. The not saying anything about the paternity is fine. That's completely satisfactory. There's no need to modify that aspect, uh, which is why we're in the second column. Either of these two are at least good enough for the aspect of not saying anything about the paternity. That's good. But not staying with Mary, that, according to this logic, it's telling us that other men in Joseph's situation would have been inclined to perhaps stay. So either to do one or the other. Joseph is not doing either, whereas other men would be inclined either to say something and or to claim Mary as their wife and the child as their own. But no, not this man, not Joseph. Joseph is not that kind of man. He's not your typical man, your typical kind of man. He's not going to be doing the sort of things that other men are more inclined to do. And so this is where we can see that choice D is actually the hardest of all, because it's definitely not the easiest. I mean, imagine not staying married, but then not saying the reason. And like, if we think about calling off a wedding, uh, there are situations where it's difficult to call off a wedding, especially if your family likes the person that you're married to and and their family likes you, like everyone's getting along. No one knows that there's that there's any any um any reason why, you know, you shouldn't be together and then to call off the wedding but to not say a reason. I mean, Joseph is choosing a difficult option. It's definitely not the easiest one. And the text is telling us this. It's telling us that uh, most other men in Joseph's situation wouldn't have done this. They wouldn't have done this combination. So if we're looking for something that's different from something, Joseph is different from something. And that is what would be most typical of somebody else, some other man in Joseph's situation. And we often miss this in, in the logic of the text, even though intuitively we know that Joseph is doing something different. It's different from something, uh, but we don't really know, well, is it better than the law? Is Joseph, what, 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 what's different? Well, according to the logic of verse 19, this is what's different. This combination of, out of the four choices, to choose this combination of choices. Alright, so now we need to look at, well, why does the angel say to go for choice C? Um, well, uh, you know, not let's not do choice D, Joseph, let's do choice C. Alright, so now we need to look at what is what is going on with the angel's recommendation to choose choice C. Uh, so let's look at what the angel says to Joseph. Uh, well, the angel says, Joseph, son of David, 
do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife. Now, we often add the word as your wife because that's the way the English, uh, we, we speak in, in English, we you know, as your wife. Um, but in the Greek, uh, it doesn't need to be read that way. It, it can just be read as don't be afraid to take Mary, your wife. Um, so what we notice here is that there's a difference between what Joseph is being told in the first little part, which is about something that hasn't happened yet. So the angel knows that from Joseph's perspective, he hasn't really taken Mary yet. So do not be afraid to take Mary. So this is referring to something that that Joseph is afraid to do, to go ahead with. So this is something that hasn't happened yet. So it's reflecting Joseph's point of view. But then the next part, your wife, is reflecting a situation which Joseph doesn't believe. Joseph doesn't believe that Mary is his wife because she's having a child with somebody else. Uh, Joseph and Mary aren't in a sexual stage of marriage. She's having a child with somebody else. That's a much more intimate stage than what Mary and Joseph have. So she's not not really Joseph's wife if she's together with somebody else. So according to Joseph's perspective, whoever she's having a child with has more rights to Mary than he does. So the angel is saying, well, Joseph, Mary is your wife. So this is a slightly different perspective than what Joseph has. So the angel is bringing a different perspective and uh, yeah, and saying, you know, don't be afraid to be married to your own wife. And this is where we need to notice that this is the fourth time that we have heard that, that Mary and Joseph are husband and wife. This, is, this has been pointed out so many times and we didn't really need to be told this this so many times. Um, you know, it could have just said, don't be afraid to take Mary. Um, but but remember, we, we've been told in verse 16 that Joseph was the husband, and in verse 18 that Mary was the betrothed wife, and then in verse 19, Joseph was the husband, and now we've been told again by the angel that Mary is Joseph's wife. What What is going on here? Uh why are we being told again and again and again? Why? Okay, we get it. You know, Mary's the wife, Joseph's the husband. But according to Joseph's perspective, he hasn't quite got that perspective. He doesn't think that it's true to say that Mary is his wife. He doesn't feel like that's the, you know, that's the correct identification. And it's at this point that it pays to notice that the plan that the angel is telling Joseph to go ahead with is the same as something that's there's something else that's that's going on, something else that we can see in the text that's going on, that's the same as the as, as the plan, option C or choice C that the angel is is telling Joseph to go with. That's the same as something else in the story. What is it the same as? Well, we might initially think, well, it's very similar to Joseph's original plan. Before he found out that Mary was pregnant with a child that wasn't his, 
he was originally planning to stay married to to Mary and to to raise Mary's child or children as, as his own. Uh, but it's not exactly the same because he's probably planning on raising his own biological children with Mary. So it's not exactly the same, but there is something that it is exactly the same as. And that is the public perception. According to the public opinion, Joseph and Mary are counted as husband and wife, and the child is counted as their child. That's as far as the public perception goes, that is the situation. So what the, the angel is really telling Joseph is, do not be afraid to go along with the public perception. According to the public perception, Mary is your wife. Do not be afraid to step into that role. That That is fine. It's not like there's another man in the picture that you're competing with, that, that there's no other man here. Uh, you, you get to be the husband. Mary gets to be the wife. This is go with it. That's It's being affirmed. This relationship is being affirmed and sanctioned by the angel of the Lord. And then the next sentence is affirming, affirming uh, and sanctioning the, the parental relationship. Um, and so this is, this is what the angel is saying. The angel is affirming the public perception. And so now we know why it kept saying again and again and again, that, that Joseph was the husband, Mary was the wife. So in verse 16, uh, you know, Joseph belongs to Mary. Verse 18, Mary belongs to Joseph. Verse 19, Joseph belongs to Mary. And now we're told in verse 20, Mary belongs to Joseph. So, okay, Mary and Joseph belong together. They belong with each other because that is the public perception and that is the one that the angel is sanctioning. Now, how can we be so confident of this? How, how is it that we know that this is what's going on? Well, <laughs> we can see it if we imagine what it would look like if it were completely opposite. If the angel had been saying to Joseph, be very afraid, be afraid for your life. Uh, you shouldn't be taking Mary. Uh, she's not your wife. I mean, this is obviously the opposite to what we've got because... You know, the angel saying, don't be afraid to be married to your own wife. It's not like she belongs to somebody else. Um, uh, but what would it look like to be opposite? Is if Joseph wasn't afraid and he should have been afraid. And, well, fortunately, we don't even have to imagine it, what that scenario would look like because we have the opposite scenario already earlier in the scriptures. Back in the book of Genesis where God turns up in a dream to Abimelech and says, Be afraid for your life, for the woman that you have taken belongs to someone else. She belongs to another man. And this is the case of Abraham and Sarah had been going around telling everyone that they weren't husband and wife. And King Abimelech took Sarah into his palace as a wife. And God turns up in a dream and says, Be very afraid. Uh, be afraid for your life. Uh, the woman you have taken is another man's wife. And um, Abimelech's trying to say, well, but I'm innocent, I'm innocent. I haven't begun a sexual relationship with her. And besides, according to everyone and Sarah, 
they're not husband. Abraham and Sarah are not husband and wife. They're just brother and sister. So, like, I'm innocent. Um, and we often read the story as if, as if we think, yes, Abimelech is innocent. But really, it's saying that from God's perspective, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that he, he his perspective is that he thinks he's innocent. God's saying the public perception is wrong. It doesn't matter that the public think that Abimelech is innocent. Abimelech is saying, I'm not guilty in God's sight. It, that doesn't matter that the public perception is that he wasn't guilty. Uh, so here we have the exact opposite of what we find in Matthew chapter 1, where God is stepping in to affirm the public opinion rather than stepping in to disaffirm. So basically, we can now see what it was that Joseph was afraid of. He was afraid that the public opinion wasn't something that he could go along with because he knew something that the public didn't know. He knew something that he, he should be taking into consideration, that Mary wasn't really his wife. He didn't have the greater claim to Mary as his own wife and a greater claim to the child as his own child. So it's not just that it would have been untruthful to go around trying to claim and assert his right to, to Mary and the child. It would have been wrong in the sight of God, according to how Joseph is thinking. What was Joseph thinking? Joseph was thinking about the public opinion not being a very good, accurate representation of his relationship and it would not be right to go along with the public opinion. Because he's thinking about, well, in the eyes of God, uh, the relationship would be counted as pornea if he went ahead. So Joseph does not want to be guilty of pornea. So this is a little bit like Abimelech, but really it's completely the opposite, the inverted kind of story to Abimelech. Because unlike Abimelech, who believed he was innocent and he was not guilty of Bunia, Joseph believes that he would be guilty of Bunia. And unlike Abimelech, where God had to override the public opinion because it was, it was not correct, in this case, God is having to intervene in order to legitimate and affirm the public opinion so that Joseph will go along with the public opinion. So if we can begin to see all the different perspectives that the text is presenting in the story, then we can actually find these subtleties and, and really get into the heart of, well, what was Joseph thinking? Well, Joseph was thinking he, he would be guilty of pornea if he went along with the public perspective. Joseph is thinking that the public perception isn't something that he can go along with. He, he needs to somehow change the public opinion, but without really going public, he doesn't want to affirm what the public thinks, but he, he doesn't really want to do it in a public manner, so he wants to just quietly and, and slowly step out of the picture, step aside, and whoever has the greater rights can, can step into that role. He doesn't feel like he has the right to that role. And then God steps in and says, actually, this role is being sanctioned. This marriage, the marital relationship is being sanctioned. The parental relationship is being sanctioned. It's, it's okay, Joseph, to step into this role that is already created for you by the public perception. What the public perception is does really matter. And this is what Joseph was thinking. He was thinking that even though it would be right in the eyes of the public to be married to Mary, it would be wrong in the eyes of God. So finally, we can answer our question about what was Joseph thinking? He was concerned about not affirming the public opinion. 
So basically, the text does tell us what it was that Joseph was thinking. He did not want to be the one who was guilty of intruding into the relationship. If Mary wasn't his to claim, he wasn't going to claim that he was the husband. So this is the opposite to Abimelech, who is being told, according to the story, that God is trumping the public perspective. So the public perspective is pretty strong, but God is trumping that and saying, well, actually, it's a case of pornea if Abimelech is taking Sarah. And in Joseph's case, in Matthew 1, Joseph does not want to be guilty of pornea. He is responsible for his own actions. He does not want to be responsible for contributing pornea. He does not want to be contributing his own pornea by claiming Mary, claiming the child, uh, and, and asserting his rights to Mary and the child. Joseph is concerned of his own actions. He's, he's concerned of what he is responsible for. He is responsible for his own actions. He does not want to be the intruder. He does not want to be the one bringing about Pornia. He is resisting an adulterous relationship if he himself is the intruder. He does not want to be the intruder. So finally, we can answer this question. What was Joseph thinking? He was thinking not about Mary's actions and whether Mary had done the wrong thing and blaming Mary. He's thinking about his own actions. And this, this, we get to answer the second question, because it's the same answer. Why wasn't Joseph confronting Mary? Why wasn't Joseph going to Mary to, to, to get his questions answered about, whose child is this? Well, it's the same answer. Joseph's not trying to figure out whether Mary has done the wrong thing. So he's not going to ask Mary because he's not, he's not wanting to interrogate her. He's not wanting to judge her. The very act of going to Mary would have would have put Joseph in a position of asserting his right to know, his right to know about whose child it is, as if he has the right over Mary, and he, he has the right to know. And if we go back to our original two questions, we can see that they were loaded questions. It wasn't just what, what was Joseph thinking. It was, we were putting in the assumption that Joseph must have been thinking about Mary, and Mary has done something. What's Mary done wrong? And uh, we already had blame and accusation in the assumed question. And similarly, we had the second question, why didn't Joseph consult Mary? That was also a loaded question, as if Joseph should be asserting his right to know whose child Mary is carrying. And not only that, it's assuming that Joseph is making a decision based on his, his assumption, whereas that doesn't seem to be what's in the text. So this whole assumption that he should be be going to Mary to find out about the child, it, it's just it's, it's, it's a loaded question. And so it's difficult to see how the writer would have written it so that, that Joseph is going to Mary to get his questions answered without making it look like Joseph is asserting his rights to the relationship that Mary is supposed to be his wife and, and Mary is supposed to be having his child. Um, so I, I feel like it really would have undermined the whole story to try to present Joseph as going to Mary and, and wanting answers about whose child it was.
And the text does make sense after all. The ramifications from this episode are quite far-reaching, so I'll just give some of the ramifications as I see it. And uh, I probably should mention why I put all of these assumptions into a single episode when it's, it's really about six episodes worth. Well, I thought it, it wouldn't really be fair to put out episode after episode of here's another assumption that doesn't work, here's another assumption that we're getting wrong. We really needed all of these assumptions to be examined in order to answer the question, what was Joseph thinking? Now, you might think, well, I could have just started with what was Joseph thinking about Mary? And actually, if we look at the previous four assumptions, uh, not only are the fifth assumptions and the sixth assumptions about Mary, but the first four assumptions are also about Mary. So not only do these six assumptions add up because they're all affecting our interpretation, but they all add up to telling us that we're trying to read Mary into the text. So the first assumption, we're wanting to read the text as a nativity scene, perhaps, and wanting us to tell about the day that Mary gave birth to Jesus. The second assumption is looking for Mary talking to Joseph. And the third assumption, we're looking for other people talking about Mary and what Mary has done wrong. The fourth assumption, we're looking for the narrator to be telling us about Mary's conception, about Mary becoming pregnant. The fifth assumption is about what we think the public thinks that Joseph should be doing about Mary. And the sixth assumption is we're looking for what Joseph is thinking that Mary has done wrong. So even before we get to the sixth assumption, we've already been making these assumptions that the text is supposed to be telling us about Mary. So we have this tendency to already think that Mary is the subject of what's going to be in Joseph's mind because we've already it's already been in our mind. And often when I was researching for this episode, uh, I felt like, well, how does a researcher research something in the text that's not actually in the text? It's, I keep finding things that are just not there. Yeah, so how, how do we research something that's not there? And... Of course, the answer is, well, if it's coming from us, then we need to be studying us. Why Why are we holding this assumption? Becoming conscious of the assumptions that we're actually bringing to the text. And so I think that it, this whole process of interpretation, it, it really just goes to show just how much it depends on us. Uh, the interpretation that, that, we, that we come up with it really does depend so much on ourselves and, and what we are bringing. And it's it's really a win-win situation, really, because the more we study ourselves and become critically aware of our own assumptions, then the more that it, it enables us to actually see what is going on in the text. And so this leads me to conclude that exegesis is possible. If we begin with becoming aware of our own assumptions and we can examine our own assumptions about the things that we think that we're reading in the text, well, we can actually get to closer uh, into the text, which leads me to talk about the topic of 
exegesis, which is a word that uh, I'm quite passionate about, and I almost felt for a while that I, I probably wouldn't be able to use the word anymore because of this binary that's been created between exegesis, reading out of the text, and eisegesis, reading into the text. As if it's a binary. It's, it's not a binary. If this episode is anything to go by, then the process is, is, is all interwoven together. The, the process of getting into the text began with us. We, we begin by looking at our own assumptions in order to get into the text. So, so conscious eisegesis is part of the process of exegesis. This leads me to another ramification which is similar to this binary that was being created between you know, what counts as exegesis and what counts as eisegesis, which, which is not a very helpful binary at all. Uh, this is the topic of what counts as feminist interpretation. Uh, so there are certain kinds of interpretation that we've been told are not exegesis. You know, that we've split them off as if, well, that's not exegesis. That's over there. That's, that's something different. So, for example, a lot of what is regarded as feminist interpretation, well, that's, you know, it's not really counted as exegesis. And so the people who are doing feminist interpretation sort of end up saying, okay, well, well, when, okay, well we're doing something different. We're, you know, we're reading against the text. Or we're suspicious of the text, uh, you know, because like, well, exegesis, it's almost like exegesis. We know what it is and it, it, we've basically already done it. But I don't think we, we really do know what it is, and I don't think we basically have already done it. I, I feel like we're only really just beginning to understand how to do exegesis, and it's not completely separate to feminist interpretation. And I find it quite disheartening at, at times when I see feminist interpreters and womanist interpreters who they're you know they're forced to admit that well they're not doing exegesis you know they're not reading in line with the text that you know they're they're doing some other project but I don't find the the insights to be at odds with with the with the text especially from um, what I found so far in um, looking at the story of Mary and Joseph so I am a bit concerned that what what often passes as exegetical is something that I'm not particularly proud of. And so I really think we do really need to rethink uh, the whole idea of of what counts as exegesis, uh, what counts as eisegesis, and what counts as feminist interpretation, and uh, rather than just thinking that we've got it all worked out already. And so when I hear a feminist interpretation that says, well, you know, we, we need to resist the hegemonic patriarchy of the text. We've got to resist, uh, you know, this controlling of Mary's body and all these assumptions about Mary. But really, we're actually talking about resisting our own projections. So, so many things that we find, oh, we need to resist this, need to resist that. Uh, they're just not coming from the text. They're coming from us. And of course, we will want to be resisting the kind of things that have previously passed as as exegetical, but but they might not be exegetical. So we began by thinking that okay, well Joseph just doesn't seem to be a very feminist kind of man. Uh, and when I first started researching this question, I thought, well, why isn't the angel just telling Joseph to go talk to Mary? Go talk to Mary, Joseph. Why doesn't the angel just say talk to Mary? Uh, ask her some questions. 
listen to what she says. It does end up feeling like, well, you know, Joseph is a bit judgmental, a bit arrogant, a bit hypocritical, a bit entitled to, to making decisions on behalf of Mary without even checking his assumptions. But we've missed all of these important aspects in the text that, that are depicting a non-judgmental Joseph. So many of the things that we've, we've felt like, well, we need to help the story, we need to fix it a little bit, have ended up making it worse, has ended up making it more patriarchal and less feminist and undermining the message in the text. Now, I think part of the problem is is the Protestant tendency. Most of the commentaries have, uh, have been written by Protestant interpreters and the part of the Protestant tendency is to not esteem characters uh, and, and to assume that, well, they're just like ourselves. So, you know, Joseph's is just a man like us. So this tendency to read Joseph as, oh, he's just a typical man, or we think, okay, well, what would Joseph do uh, in, well, what would I do in Joseph's situation? So we, we, want to, we want to make a connection, to find a connection between us as interpreters and what would, the, you know, the main character who's making a decision, what, what are they thinking? So we think of projecting, it's a natural thing to want to project ourselves onto the, the main character. And I feel like that's probably what's happened with the Protestant interpreters who, who've written most of the commentaries, uh, been written by Western Protestant men. And so if you're reading it from that perspective, then I feel like, well, that partly explains what's happened with this projection, where without the Catholic tendency to esteem and honour Joseph as a saint, or I should say without the Catholic or Orthodox traditions. Um, not that I personally identify as Catholic or Orthodox. I have a Protestant background. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why we, in our commentaries, we've really missed what's going on with Joseph. And, you know, we, we end up with these misassumptions. And we end up with a Joseph that's like, oh, well, you know, he's just, he's just an average man. Those are some of the ramifications as I see them studying what Joseph was thinking in Matthew chapter 1. And I encourage listeners to draw their own conclusions and ramifications from this episode. That's the end of this episode. Thank you for listening. Join me next time to solve more mysteries in Matthew chapter 1.